Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 3. The woman speaks. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handle to the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. The others say, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? The woman speaks. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The others say, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? And the woman says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. If any of you who are married have been listening to this Song of Song series and have not been able to relate to the, these two sweet little lovebirds, uh, this is your chapter, okay? Because there's finally some conflict, there's finally some reality breaking into the relationship. The man's knocking at her door, she's just not in the mood, not tonight, dear. And the next thing you know, everybody's feelings are hurt, everybody's feeling abandoned, now, all human relationships are going to experience conflict in, in some sort, and usually it's the more intimate the relationship, the more quickly conflict is going to happen. So go ask any married couple about their honeymoon. Honeymoons? They are a great time if you want to have a, have a fight or a conflict your, if, with your spouse to start crying in front of each other for the first time. That's whenever that stuff often happens. See, in those moments, it's when all of our lofty expectations for one another just start crumbling to the ground, and you realize, oh no, this person's a human. Now, before we dive into what this text has to tell us, I want to say something about the way that this text expresses itself. See, it comes to us in a dream sequence. We've seen this already in the book of Songs. It's a poetic dream. Look at verse 2, or the first verse there. She says, 
I slept, but my heart was awake. And that's why everything that happens in this text is so, so dreamlike. It's a little bit real. It's a little bit surreal. For example, her husband is standing outside of the house knocking. Like, if it's her husband, why can't he just walk in? Well, it's his house. Well, it's a dream. And then there's the business of her going out in the city at night to find him. Maybe you've read through Song of Songs. You'd be like, what in the world is going on with this woman getting beat up by the, the town guards? See, in reality, that would be an extremely traumatizing event for somebody to experience. But she's barely phased. She gets bruised, but then what does she do? She's just like, somebody help me find my lover. See, it's, it, it, it's, it's strange. <laughs> it's not quite reality. Reality's bent. It's because it's all a dream. And then uh, at the end, the lover just somehow magically appears. So, so that's how we're viewing today's text. It's dreamlike, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. This is still well-crafted love poetry. There is some truth in these words that the Lord is expressing to us. Now we're going to meander through the story to get to that truth. Uh, but, but, but here it is. Here's what we're ultimately going to see. We need two things for relationships to work. We need to be loved by another person, but that's not really a relationship, that's still one-sided. The other part is we need to love another person, to be loved and to loved. And this will lead us to conflict in all relationships, ultimately, especially in marriage. Because as for the first one, nobody can ever love us enough to satisfy us. And this messes up the second one because then we try and fill in that gap of love that that we have by spending our own love energy that we're supposed to spend on other people. Dishes get left in the sink. Work intrudes into the home. And look, it's not enough for me to just simply stand up here and say, you know, stop being selfish. We are are selfish people, yes. Uh, but, But also, and more importantly, is we're malnourished people. Our hunger for love is eating away at us. doesn't matter if you're single or married. See, we just don't have the energy in and of ourselves to go off and love other people and make sure that we're loved ourselves sufficiently. But the Bible offers us a solution, and we'll see it in this text. See, see God himself is our ultimate source of love. Only uh, he can nourish us. In a sense, he's our ultimate lover. And that's why we see in in Scripture things like he is our our bridegroom and we are his bride. And that's ultimately where we're heading with today's sermon. And we're going to take it in two parts. Love lost and love found. Part one, love lost. We're not going to spend a ton of time here because the second part, ha- second part has a lot more that we need to work through. But, but here in this text, love is lost when, we're, we're given an instance, where the lover's desires for sexual experience are misaligned. Look at verse 2. He's knocking on the door. Now, it's a dream, but it's pretty clear what's going on. Uh, he then starts crooning. Look at his words. He's... He's saying to her, my love, my dove, my perfect one. This might sound familiar to some of you wives. Uh, Now, I missed this the first time I read through. But did you catch how he tries to get her to open up? He says, 
uh, that his, his head is wet with dew, with the drops of the night. See, he, he's painting the, this picture. Like, in this dream, he's been out all night working to try and find his way to her. So he, he deserves this visit. His hair is all wet. You know, like, he just needs to come home. She should take pity on him and let him in. See, he wants her to think that he deserves it. He's come a long way for it. He's outside in the dark. How does she respond to his request? Well, she's hesitant, isn't she? Not tonight. Look at verse 3. She's already gotten ready for bed. These are the excuses. Uh, Then she doesn't want to dirty her feet by walking to the door. She doesn't want to open up. She wants to sleep. So she hesitates. Hence the conflict in the text, these two desires. Verse 4, he gives one last effort. He's trying to wiggle the door handle, but no response. All the while, unbeknownst to him, uh, she is being wooed by him. She's feeling pursued by him, and that is then increasing her desire. Her hands are dripping with myrrh. That's a a sweet-smelling perfume of the ancient world. She's wanting to be attractive to him. But by the time that she opens up the door, he's gone. The dude's given up. And now both of them are sexually frustrated and feeling abandoned. They lost the love that they wanted to make. And the lovers are now separated, and each of them are going out into that dark night alone. Now before we continue with this drama that may be all too familiar to some of us married couples... I wanted to say a couple things about this notion that we see here in the text of her desire and and just the ways that that things have kind of messed up. First, this little story is evidence that uh, following all the rules before you get married doesn't guarantee you a conflict-free marriage. Like, virgins still get married and there's still problems. The, The second thing I wanted to say, though, is this. It's really interesting. If you're a Christian or not, this text should really make you pause and just kind of reconsider your notion of of the Bible. Because the focus in the text on the woman's desire is revolutionary. See, in the ancient Near East, uh, you didn't talk about women and their desires like this. Uh, Women were often seen as nothing more but wombs to to create babies, Uh, sexual property. Things like this, for for the word of God to have in it, not just an example, but even a celebration of the woman's desire, it's it's profound. The the Bible's not this old, stodgy, old-fashioned thing. No, 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 it's, it's deeply real, deeply good, and it celebrates all that needs to be celebrated. So, back to the story. Now she's out in the cold herself. And she's searching for her lost lover. And this is where things get interesting. Verse 6, she calls for him, but he doesn't respond. And her her heart melts. And then the interesting bit about the watchman, because things get painful for her. Please look at verse 7. She encounters the watchman, and for whatever reason, they beat her up. Now, all the commentaries I read, none of them could agree on what is happening in this scene. Uh, so, so here's my interpretation to add to the pile. This woman has swapped places with the man, so to speak. 
Now, now it's her outside wandering the streets at night. Now it's her outside knocking and trying to get his attention. And it's not so fun. In fact, her rejection of him, it, it feels like getting beat up. Now, if we translate this out of that poetic dreamscape into real life, she's probably, now she's starting to give him some signals to let, let him know that she's uh, in the mood now, or like she's trying to invite him, but he has already rolled over in bed. He's staring at his phone. He's got his ear, uh, earphones in. Uh, he's gone. She can't reach him. So this leads to her pleading for help in the next verses. She adjures the daughters of Jerusalem again. You know, all, all these other times she's adjured the daughters of Jerusalem. She's like, hey, y'all don't, don't awaken love yet. You know, she's always telling them what to do. But now she's actually crying out for her help. This is interesting. She needs their help. Uh, look at verse 8. She asked them to help find her man. And what? Well, look, look at specifically what she asked them to do. Tell him that she is sick with love. She's sick with love. She wants him to pity her now. She's sick. This is love lost. This is what happens all the time, not just in marriage, but any time we don't get what we want from a relationship. And it's sly. We do it nonstop. But we always try to play the victim, to manipulate other people into just giving in to what we want. Now, I want to be clear, uh, Christianity, it, it says that we have problems and that we should reach out to the other ones near us, and man, husbands and wives, that's a great place to reach out for help, always. Nonetheless, we will try to manipulate any relationship we can. Be wary of the sin in your hearts. Back in chapter 2, she said she wanted some raisin cakes because she wanted to be refreshed. But here, she just wants what she wants. And same with him. Uh, he's trying to use her. She's trying to use him. Both of them are wanting sexual pleasure for themselves. It's not a, sh a shared act. It's not a mutual giving up and devotion and love. They are looking at one another as if they are merely means to an end. That's why there's conflict. And so what's going on here? It's this. It's self-focused love doesn't work. Self-focused love doesn't work. Now, the curious thing is that in today's culture, this is actually held up as the ideal sexual relationship or any relationship. It's, it's the idea that uh, we are there to get what we want from somebody, and if that relationship isn't working, then we cut it off. Now, now some good has come alongside this. Uh, I, I love living in the 21st century. One of the great reasons is we, have, we, we now prize consent more than, more than we ever have. And that's fantastic. But on the flip side of this, uh, our sexual ethic has also been corrupted. It's become consumeristic. He wants to consume and he can't, so he gets mad. She wants to consume and she gets upset when she can't. That's what we see in the text. Their only hope in this situation is for both of them to want it at the same time, to be able to use each other. But you cease to be lovers, Whenever you treat one another as if, as if it's a marketplace. Whenever it's just an exchange of goods and services for certain prices. Whatever's worth it to you. These are the moments in which conflict reigns in marriages. Now maybe at this point you're feeling a little bit frustrated. 
You just can't win. Like, like what are you supposed to do in life? Uh, How are you supposed to find love? How are you supposed to actually be loved the way that you want? So part two, love found. There's something to be said about the way that the woman searches and searches and searches. She calls out and she can't find her man until her interaction with the daughters of Jerusalem. She asks for their help, and then they actually ask her a question, and it, and it sparks her mind going. Look, look at verse 9. They say to her, What is your beloved more than any other beloved, O most beautiful among women? What's so great about him that's worth searching for? And here's where she has her breakthrough. Why is he worth searching for? It's not because of what he can give her in the moment. No. It's because... He's inherently lovable. She looks at him and she remembers that no, that this person matters just, just because of who they are. She takes her gaze off of herself and she looks at him, and it's not in a hungry sort of way, it's in an adoring way. That she she then burst out into song. And look, this is her longest song of praise in the book. This is one where she gets the most time on the air and she's just praising this man. Verse 10. What does she say? She says, he's one of a kind, you know, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Nobody like him. Look at verse 11. Nice hair. That's okay. Verse 12, pretty eyes. Uh, Ladies, please don't hold us by this standard. Uh, Verse 13, pretty good looking face, good lips. Verse 14, his body is like ivory covered in sapphires. Clearly a man with freckles. Uh, These are the outward things that she sees. These are the things that she looks at this man and she's like, oh, all these daughters of Jerusalem, they'll be able to pick this guy out of a crowd. Just go look for the most beautiful, handsomest man. That's my man. Now, let's be clear. She's seeing him with lover's eyes. Other people may think he's handsome, but but she really is going overboard with her praise. In fact, it, it actually borders on worship, if you pay attention. Did you catch how she talks about him as if he's a god? Like this dude is godlike, like an Adonis in her eyes. Look again at verse 11. A head of gold, like that image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse 14, arms of gold set with jewels. Verse 15, legs of alabaster set on a gold base with the cedars of Lebanon, the same cedars that they used to make the temple. Now, maybe you can brush these things off and say, oh, that's just a coincidence. I mean, those are pretty things, so yeah, they'll use them for, for making idols and stuff too. But maybe. But in earlier texts, we've seen how the, the guy praises this woman as, as if she's a goddess. You know, it, it, It's really quite high praise. And, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure what to do with it. It's kind of like Psalm 45, if you ever go read it. Very interesting psalm. Where, where the wedding of the king is somehow blurred with praise of the Lord. It's very strange. Maybe something like that is happening here with like an idealized King Solomon. Or, or maybe, maybe it's just that she's truly recognizing that he's made in the image of God and, and that he's deserving of all of her uh, attention and, and respect as, as her or his wife, and together they'll display the glory of God. Maybe something like that's going on. It's really not clear. But what is clear is how this song of hers ends. She says something unique and beautiful at the end of verse 16. Look. She says, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. 
He's her friend. Like, like it finally clicks. She gets it. He's not somebody to be left out in the cold when he's not needed or wanted. He's not somebody to use. No, no, he's her friend, her companion. And that's when the magic happens in the text. The lover just appears out of nowhere. Uh, in verse six, one, or chapter 6, verse 1, the daughters of Jerusalem, they ask her, where has this you know, wonderful Adonis of yours gone off to? And look at her response in, in verse 2 and 3. She says, he's gone to his garden. He's grazing. He's, he's gathering lilies. She is his garden. He's home. He's with her. He's where he's supposed to be, right next to her. She is his. He is hers. Here's the principle. You focus on yourself and love will be lost. You will only find love, even after you've been married, even after you've been friends with somebody for a long time, you will only find love whenever you are focusing on them and delighting in them, being other-focused. It's only then you can have a relationship that's not transactional, consumeristic. That's love. So that's how she found love in the text. She was other-focused. What about us? How do we experience this love? Well, let me start by saying how we don't experience this love. Earlier I said that relationships, they need two things to work. You need to be loved and you need to love. And other people can never love us enough to satisfy us. And we spend, we spend all that love energy on ourselves trying to fill in that gap. It's like we're, we're addicts. We're trying to get our next hit of love. And we're actually really quite shallow whenever it comes to this. Maybe some of this sounds familiar to you. Any of you ever fall in love on an elevator? Or something like, like you see somebody and your heart just like, <gasps> or maybe you're standing in line at Starbucks or you see somebody sitting at a table and you're just. Maybe you've already planned a dream wedding with the, that guy in class. You, you haven't even walked up to say who, like, like hi, I'm so and so, and you're already like falling and, and, and fainting over this guy. See, infatuation, shallow love, it is, it's powerful, and we, we want that next hit. Some of you try and get this hits, uh, hits of this through, through pornography. You're, you're adoring some unrealistic goddess or, or god on, on, online, and there's no depth to relate the relationship there. Like, you haven't actually experienced them at all. It's, it's just consumeristic. You want, they give. Some of you, I jest in part, but some of you may be addicted to Hallmark movies this time of year. The, the ones with that, like that small town guy, and, and he's just trying to make sure that the town Christmas festival gets off to a nice start. And you're just, you're just wishing he was looking at, at you the way he's looking at that Christmas tree. Hey, maybe that's you. Look, this text exposes all the ways that we want shallow relationships, that we're just trying to get a hit of love. But it's all fool's gold. None of us are really that lovable at the end of the day. None of us are this other focused where we're, we're loving somebody that well to make any relationship really work. I mean, you put any real amount of mileage on a relationship, you're going to get a flat tire. You're going to have conflict. George Matheson was a Scottish hymn writer and he started going blind while he was in seminary. And it was really quite sad because he had a fiance at the time. And yeah, in that stage of life, young couple dreaming of what life could be, getting their hopes up. Anyway, the girl leaves him. She says, 
I don't want to be married to a blind guy. And now, could you imagine being George Matheson in this situation? Like, he's got all these hopes. His world is crumbling, and the one person he was hoping could be there to love him is now deserting him. So he goes off, and he ends up living with his sister for a number of years until she herself gets engaged to be married to somebody else. On the evening of their wedding, whenever his sister has gone off, and George is home, alone, truly alone for the first time, all these thoughts going through his head. He, he penned a hymn, and, and maybe some of you know it. Uh, he said that it, it took him only about five minutes to write. It's the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Listen to one of the lines. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. The, the rainbow that he's singing about, it was, it was a promise that, that the Lord was, was hanging up his, his battle bow in the sky, that he wasn't there to wage war with man. In fact, he was actually making a promise to save man. God's love would not let George go. It will not let us go. God's made a promise that no matter how unlovable we become, how sinful how blind. God would one day invite us into his wedding ceremony. He wants to be with us. A morning whenever he wipes away all our tears and all the rain clouds will be blown away. The day that all those who have put their faith in him will be dressed as his bride. See, George Matheson understood deeply that we need a greater lover. We don't need a God-like lover we need God. Why God? Is this just a bait and switch where we get your attention and get you seated here and we're talking about sexuality so you're interested and then we switch it over to talk about God? No, 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 no. We, we truly need God as our lover and here's why. Because only God can be immensely loving. And only God is immensely lovable. And we need both of those if we're going to have love, right? Only God is immensely loving. That is, God's not going to give up. The man in our text, he knocks on the door, but, but he leaves whenever she's hesitant. I mean, husbands, have you ever abandoned your wives like that? You just cut off emotionally whenever she does. See, see God doesn't do that. Only Christ is not put off by our hesitancy. In fact, he came to be with us whenever we were what? Not just hesitant, but we were militant against him. And that's when he came for us. And, and, and not, not to get something that he wanted, but to actually love us, to bestow his love on us. Only God would do such a thing. And he's not going to abandon us. And all of us, look, we have our limits. Christ doesn't. In fact, Christ came not, it was the opposite to abandon us. And there at the cross, what happened? He himself was abandoned for us. He not only wanted to, to pay for our pain, but to take all our pain away. He wanted to be the one who made it sure that if we put our faith in him, we wouldn't hurt anymore. So he took our spot out in the dark night so that we would never be abandoned again. See, only God is this other focused. 
You want to be loved? Only God can truly love you. Only God is immensely lovable. So you put mileage on your uh, relationships with one another, you're going to get conflict, you're going to get flat tires, you're going to get sin. But God himself has actually invited you to spend eternity with him. Now, Christians, uh, whenever they often think of spending eternity with God, we actually get a little terrified because we're like, oh no, like, what if that's boring? You know, like, like, oh, what if that's hard? But no, like, God has invited you to test him for eternity in a sense, to put mile after mile on that relationship. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that he's increasingly delightful, increasingly lovely. He's immensely lovely. You're going to love him forever. I said this all wasn't a bait and switch. The answer isn't that like you need Jesus to be your boyfriend. It's bigger than that. What's really going on is this. See, you and me, we're only going to be able to love other people whenever we've experienced love ourselves, and we can only get love from God. We can only love others to the degree that we have experienced God's love. So if you know that you're loved eternally, it's not going to be that big of a deal whenever you don't get what you want in the moment. See, you are loved even whenever uh, she ignores your knocks at the door. You are loved and not abandoned even whenever he gets upset and shuts down. If you find yourself constantly disappointed in your relationships, it, it, it may be that you really don't know the love of God. But when you do begin to spend time with Jesus, and all of his beauty, from the crown of thorns on his head to those the holes in, in those perfect hands of his, you're going to be a little bit less desperate to be loved by the people around you. You're going to start getting filled up with, with his love. Jesus doesn't want to be your boyfriend. No, Jesus wants to love you so much that you can go off and, and marry somebody just as wretched as you are. That you can go off and you can love your neighbors or your siblings, your siblings. Uh, so, find your love in God and go put some mileage on your relationships. Let's pray. Lord, you have loved us. Help our selfish hearts to respond in thankfulness. You are going to give us countless opportunities this week to, to feel the lack of love in our relationships. Lord, please use those moments to turn our hearts to you, to delight in you, to find our comfort and our love truly in you until you come for your bride again. Amen.